like to invite Norb up. Today's been declared a national day of prayer, and so Norb is going to spend some time praying with us. Yep. Let's just bow our heads. Our Father, we uh, have been called by our president of this country, this great nation, to have a national day of prayer. Father, I would just want to say we're thankful that we have been brought, kind of brought to our knees. Uh, our country uh, and our president has acknowledged the fact that we need to turn to God. Father, we need to turn to you every day of our life. We need to confess our sins and to give thanks for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him and we give thanks for him. Now we pray for this nation that you would use this trial to bring people to Christ. They would think about you, think about uh, where they are and if they know you or not. Even our congregation, our city, help us to think about the Lord Jesus Christ and how we're doing with him. We pray for healing now for those that have had coronavirus and those that are exposed to it. We pray for healing. You would lift this uh, plague, this virus from our nation. We give you the glory. We ask for your help and we ask for your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord of all. No matter what we face, what challenges, um, whether sickness or persecution or um, too much to do, Lord, you are in control. You are our cornerstone, and we thank you for the peace that, that you give and the strength that you give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, and welcome to Creekside Church. Uh, we're sure glad to see you here this morning. We've got uh, quite a few traveling for spring break and, and maybe a few just keeping it safe. Um, you know, we don't want to uh, be alarmist and stress people out. We don't want to say too much about it, but it is important to, you know, just take reasonable precautions, wash your hands, good hygiene, um, that good stuff. You know, if you're sick, stay home. Um, but that's all I want to say about it this morning. Uh, I want to, you know, it's been so heavy on us in the media all week. And I just want to help us lift our minds off of it for a half hour or so and turn our minds to the word of the Lord and really uplift our minds and hearts in him. And uh, I also just want to welcome back our brother, Mark Bristow, who was out for a while with his shoulder surgery. And welcome back, brother. <laughs> um, so we're in our series in Matthew, and um, we've come to chapter 5 the last couple of weeks what is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the Beatitudes, or the blessings that Jesus gives. There's eight of these blessings, and Steve has covered the first six over the last couple weeks, and we're going to look at the last two this morning. So if you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, 
And we'll just read through these Beatitudes one more time this morning. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this morning we come to another crucial godly attribute, and that is of a love for peace, being a peacemaker. And I was... I, I just think how um, I get up here maybe three or four times a year, and it never fails once a year or so that I get a topic that is at somewhat at odds in my personal life, you know, um, and, and I come to a topic of being a peacemaker when I don't feel um, that I'm a great peacemaker in my personal life. But, you know, that's the thing I was thinking about, too, is that God treats us on the basis of grace, you know? All these attributes that we've been talking about, being poor in spirit and humble and meek and gentle and pure in heart, none of us do that perfectly. And it's not the way of salvation, is it? God doesn't save us on the basis of us being pure in heart to start with. He doesn't save us on the basis of being meek and gentle um, or any of those things. He saves us only on the basis of Christ. And his work on the cross alone is the payment for our sins. We only trust in his work on the cross for our salvation. And by grace we are saved through faith in Christ, and not of our works, lest any man should boast. And after salvation, we continue to live out our lives on the basis of grace. Isn't that wonderful? When we fail and fall short, even the preachers and leaders of your church, we are still operating on the basis of grace. How wonderful that is. So we come to peace. You know, uh, we look at the world and there's not peace, is there? And in the history of mankind, there's always been conflict and strife, but it wasn't so from the beginning. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and earth, at the end of his creation, he called it good. It was perfect. There was no strife or disharmony or conflict or war. But then when sin entered the world through Adam, that harmony was taken away. And ever since then, man has been in conflict. Man has been in conflict with God. There is now a separation between man and God. Man has been in conflict with man. Man is also in conflict with nature. Romans 8 even teaches us that creation itself is groaning, waiting for its redemption one day. So the world is full of conflict. And only when Christ returns one day and sets up his perfect kingdom on this earth when he reigns and rules in righteousness, only then will there be peace on this earth one day. We look forward to that day, but right now we find ourselves in this time of disharmony and conflict. And despite man's best attempts at peace in the world and negotiating uh, peace treaties and through politics, there's always going to be a lack of that until Christ returns. But meanwhile, we're to be lovers of peace as Christians. When we see and face conflict in this life, we're to love peace 
and hate conflict. We're to help make peace. And so we're going to look primarily this morning at what it means to be peacemakers among men this morning. And to do that, I want to look at three examples. First, we're going to look at God himself, then our Lord Jesus Christ, and then the apostles and disciples. When we look at God, God is a God of peace. He says so in 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And the God of peace has done an incredible thing to bring peace in our relationship to him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God of heaven, who is holy and righteous and will judge sin with a perfect judgment in everyone's lives one day, he has sent his only son, Jesus, to make peace with man. The wrath of God has been satisfied for all who believe and trust in him for salvation. And so we are no longer enemies of God as it says in Romans 5, but we are now at peace with God if we trust in Christ and his death alone is the payment for our sins. Ephesians 2, 13, the Apostle Paul wrote, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now all of us, Jews and Gentiles, can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And Colossians 1.20 says that Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. That is the greatest need we've had for peace is between us and a holy God, a holy creator. And he has made that peace. And so because God has done so much to bring us peace in our relationship with him, how can we not also desire to bring peace to people in our lives? And I think the greatest way we can do that is to point them to Christ. Their greatest need is to be right with God. And that they need peace with God. Well, then we look at the example in the life of our Lord Jesus. He had his share of conflict. And he never aroused conflict for the sake of conflict itself. But he also didn't seek to avoid it either. A couple examples that stood out to me as I was thinking about this was the time he was heading to Jerusalem. And they had to pass by a Samaritan village. It's in Luke chapter 9. In verse 51 it says, Now it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans for, to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? So Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, they needed a pit stop along the way, and here's the Samaritan village, and Jews and Gentiles didn't exactly get along very well. Um, they hated each other. They were ethnically um, opposed to each other. And Jesus sent a couple of his disciples ahead to the town to see if he could get some provisions, and they reject them because they're Jews. And James and John are very upset by this, and they come report it to Jesus, and they said, Lord, you want us to call down fire just like Elijah did and consume them? You know what these two brothers, they had a nickname. You know what it was? James and John were known as the Sons of Thunder. Yeah, they earned that nickname, and here's a good example of that. The Sons of Thunder wanting to call down fire on these Gentiles. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus turned around, verse 55, and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. He didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. He came to bring them peace. 
And see, we see Jesus being the peacemaker. I also think about the time he is arrested in the garden. He's been betrayed by Judas. And the soldiers come with clubs and spears and swords to arrest him. And Peter, you know, the brave one, swings out his sword, probably aiming to cut off a head, but he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. And then Jesus heals the ear on the man. And he tells Peter, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it thus must happen thus? If Jesus' kingdom was of this earth and if his purpose was to reign and rule on the earth, he could have taken it by force. He could have at a moment's notice called 12 legions of angels and took out that squad of soldiers. But that was not his purpose. His purpose was to come and be the sin bearer on the cross for our sins to make peace between God and man. And so he tells Peter, put away your sword. We see Jesus as a peacemaker. And then we look to the apostles and the early church after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And there was a great time of conflict. And it rose over the Jewish custom of circumcision, which was a big deal to the Jews. The, every male had to be circumcised on the eighth day, and it was a sign of the, being part of the covenant of God. You had to be circumcised. That was a Jewish thing. And they thought that they coordinated that, um, correlated that to salvation. In verse 1 of Acts 15, it says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So right there, that's a problem. Um, because Gentiles all over the world are now starting to get saved and they don't have these Jewish customs. So therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, I love how the New King James says that, no small dissension and dispute. Yeah, they had a big conflict, <laughs> big arguments. And it says they, did, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, so here's the church leaders, the early church, and here they are in a big conflict, a big dispute about this matter of circumcision. And we might say, oh, you know, that's no big deal today. But to them it was a huge deal because uh, it identified them as the people of God. But the Gentiles who weren't Jews and didn't have that custom, um, they're, they're like, we don't see a need for circumcision. And so I love what Peter says. In Acts 15, 7, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the, my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Not an easy issue to resolve. There had been a lot of dispute about it. Maybe some of them were wondering, can we even go on together? But Peter's reasoning prevailed, and you know why? I think it's because he took their minds off of their own personal preferences, their own grievances, their own distinctives, and help them see the whole situation from God's perspective. That God had sent his son to be the savior of the world. 
that God was saving Gentiles. You know, they might have had this Jewish custom and it was important to the Jews, but God isn't just working among the Jews anymore. He's doing his saving work among all peoples now. And so Peter helped them lift their minds and their eyes off their immediate situation and circumstances to see it from the bigger picture of what God is doing. And so when we're in a time of conflict too, you know, sometimes Christian churches can get so inwardly focused on issues they're dealing with and their own preferences and their own style and their own distinctives. And that can cause churches to lose sight of the big picture of God's mission and his saving work. And the result of Peter and Paul and Barnabas says, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send some choice men with a letter to the Gentiles with a favorable decree. They were at peace about it. You know, they received it well. The Gentiles, it says, rejoiced over its encouragement. And I just think all it took was a couple of men to stand up and point people to God and what he is doing, to reorient people's thinking about a situation, to see it through God's eyes of how he is doing his saving work. You know, if you've been in any church long enough, especially in leadership, you'll encounter times of conflict and struggle. It's not unique to any particular church. And because of sin and pride and selfishness and lack of humility, et cetera, et cetera, that every human has, there's always going to be strife from time to time. And we've had our share over the years here, if you've been here long enough. But I believe God works through all of that for good even. Um, he's had to prune us back at times, I think, to help us bring some peace in our church. He's led people elsewhere, and if they're not for us, as Jesus said, if they're not against us, they're for us. So we praise God for what he's doing even through times of conflict. You know, and as much as we love peace and want to avoid conflict, right, avoiding conflict sometimes lets evil take over. Avoiding conflict sometimes brings no true peace at all. This is what peace in the church isn't. Peace in the church isn't peace at all costs. Sometimes we have important doctrines that we need to hold fast to. You know, we, we need to hold true to the teaching that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. We need to hold fast to the truth that Jesus is God and man, and he's sinless, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again on the third day, ascended to heaven, and is coming back again. We need to hold fast to the true gospel that is only by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. We can't compromise on those things. If we do, it's a false peace. It's a false church. We can't agreeably disagree on some things like that. But then there's some lesser matters where we can agreeably disagree on and we need to strive for peace on. I think um, to my relationship with uh, Jeff Westfall, a, a former elder here who moved out to Oregon a few years ago, and we taught our newcomers classes together, and we had kind of a friendly banter because I, I'm a pre-tribulationalist. Jesus is coming to take the church out of the world before the seven-year tribulation, before Christ's return. And he was a mid-tribulationalist that Jesus is going to come and rescue the church halfway through. And so, but we, we just got along so well on the issue and had some friendly, friendly banter about that. And it was never a point of conflict between us. We could agreeably disagree on a finer point of end times theology like that without, you know, getting worked up about it. But churches do divide over such things, you know? Um, we need to be careful not to let that happen in our church. And I'm very thankful for what I consider to be one of the greatest times of peace in our church that we've had in um, really my life here. And I honestly believe that the elder team is at peace here. 
all going the same direction, having the same vision for word-driven ministries and the gospel of Christ and outreach. And I've heard it said that as the leadership goes, so goes the church. You know, if your leaders are at harmony and peace with each other, that's going to have an impact on the church. And praise God for that. Um, It doesn't happen by accident. It takes a commitment on the part of each person to be humble, to give preference to others, to let others' ideas be the best ideas, even if it maybe wasn't the way you would have come up with it or the way you would have um, thought about a situation, to graciously accept input, feedback, criticism um, without being defensive, to have a shepherd's heart in all situations. Sometimes the shepherd's role is just to absorb things, hard things in the church, conflict, for the good of the flock of the church, just as a shepherd would take care of his sheep. We were just recently uh, thinking about the lighting project. Praise God, it's done. And it happened much faster than expected. But in advance of it, the elders were anticipating potential for disunity and conflict in the church because we would be inconvenienced without the use of this room for maybe three weeks or more. And so we were anticipating that and praying about that specifically. Lord, that please help us to maintain the unity. Please help there to be peace in the church through this project and not let Satan get a foothold during this time. And praise God, it was only one week and only on a Wednesday night that we didn't have this room. And it was a little bit of crazy because we had over 100 Awana kids here and couldn't use this room. But um, I would say that that was one of the nights that the kids were the most best behaved of the year. They listened, they cooperated, they followed instructions, they listened to my lesson well upstairs in a different room. And just praise God for that that he maintained the unity and peace in our body during that time. Um, But, you know, uh, peace isn't always a lasting thing. Next week, there could be an item of conflict that comes up. Maybe the governor says, you guys can't meet anymore because of the viruses going around. And we'd be like, hey, we want to (laughs) meet. You know, you see people get up, worked up about a lot of things. Uh, Toilet paper missing on the shelves and the stores and and hoarding. And uh, thanks, Mom, for bringing me the extra toilet paper yesterday. But... (laughs) She has a Sam's Club membership, so. But there needs to be a peacemaking spirit among believers, you know? Uh, Sometimes when we're at personal conflict with another person, we need to seek peace with that person and get right with them. If we see other believers in conflict, sometimes it's tempting just to sit back and say, I hope it works out. You know, I'll pray for you. (laughs) But, uh, you know, when you see a marriage in trouble and the warning signs are flashing and this, this thing is heading towards divorce, do we just sit back and say, oh, I hope it works out. Boy, that's, hard. that's too bad they're going through that. Or do we sometimes stick our neck out a little bit and say, I'll do what I can to try to help create peace in this situation. Being a peacemaker is not always easy. And in the end, you might not actually have peace. Uh, things might not go like you hope. And sometimes people don't listen. They don't do what you urge them to do. But the peacemaker's role, when you see someone not following God's word, Um, not living out godly attitudes and behaviors. To be a peacemaker is to help them get right with God so they can be right with other people. And so sometimes it's sticking our neck out there a little bit to create peace. We don't want to not speak the truth of God in order to not offend someone. It's the attitude of the peacemaker that says, the relationship with someone is more important to me than my hurt feelings It's more important 
that God have glory in this situation than for me to keep my distance and keep my personal comfort away from something hard going on. And that's not easy, is it? But God calls us to have a peacemaking spirit among all people. In Romans 12, 18, the apostle wrote, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So, you know, not just among believers, but all men. All men means all men. We're called to live peaceably with all men. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people. We're to work at living in peace with all people. And what a testimony to a world that just seems to thrive on conflict. It dominates the media headlines when there's conflict. Well, that's top news, you know. But what a witness to the world when they see believers seeking to bring peace in times of conflict, being peacemakers, helping people to come to peace. Uh, at work, I, I'm a manager now, and my first year into the role as a manager, um, I had just a very difficult situation to deal with. Um, before I get into work, uh, a guy on my team uh, who's very stressed out in life over different things comes in, and he is working on a project with another lady on my team, and they're due, due for a presentation to a lot of our business partners in a week. And uh, things had seemingly gone well, but he just came in super stressed out one morning and just openly berated her on the floor uh, loudly where other people could hear it. Uh, so I get into work. I get the reports. <laughs> uh, you never know what you're going to get on any given day in an office. <laughs> and um, like, okay, I, I got to deal with this now. And then I get a call that same morning that my grandma Klein had passed away and I need to think about getting my family plans together to drive out to Colorado for the funeral. So not an easy morning. <laughs> but I didn't need anybody to tell me what to do or that I needed to do something. I know something needed to be done. They saw a need, and I immediately called the guy into the room, talked to him over it, um, helped him to understand that his actions were wrong and the harm they caused and agree and promise not to do those things again and to apologize. You know, part of peacemaking is to help people realize their offenses and agree that they have offended someone. And then I talked to a lady and I said, you know, I've, I've, I've addressed this. I take this seriously. I've addressed it. And I just, you know, I hope you can forgive him and continue to work on the project. But I understand if it's too difficult and you can't. Um, it worked out well. Um, the Lord brought peace in that situation through me. I was able to help the, them work together. And the project went well. The presentation went well for our business partners. Um, God gave me, I feel, supernatural wisdom and grace just to help bring peace in that situation. And I have many other examples I could share where I haven't been a good peacemaker, but that was one where I felt like I was a good one, so I shared that one. <laughs> but, you know, there's a blessing for being a peacemaker, and we see that here in Matthew 5. Jesus says, the blessing for being a peacemaker is for they shall be called sons of God because God is a God of peace. One of the ways we are most like him is when we help bring peace and when we are peacemakers. What a blessing can, can be ours. When we are peacemakers, God views us as his sons. He calls us sons of God. How, what greater blessing is that, there than that, than to be known as a son of God? And that's the blessing that's ours when we are peacemakers. Well, this uh, last beatitude in the passage the last blessing Jesus gives follows all the other Beatitudes. He's talked about people who are poor in spirit, 
humble, mourn over their sin, meek and gentle, merciful, pure in heart, are peacemakers. People like that, if people really live like that, they're going to stand out. And in a world hostile towards God, that leads to persecution. And that's what we see here in these verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You It's kind of ironic that while being a peacemaker is a godly characteristic that oftentimes it can lead to being a, a troublemaker, being in trouble with the world. And Jesus said to expect persecution. In John 15, in verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He talks about how people will be reviled. If you don't know what vile means, that revile means to mockery and ridicule and contempt, to be persecuted. He says, they'll say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You know, we see some of this in our culture today. We see times, in the, and it gets reported in the news, where a cake maker gets sued because it's against their Christian conviction to bake a cake for a gay wedding, something like that. But by and large, we have great freedom in this country. Praise God for that. Because there are many places around the world where they are, Christians are persecuted. They are hunted and persecuted. You look at China, you look at Eritrea, Africa, you look at Myanmar, many places around the world, are, Christians are suffering. The churches have to go underground. They can't worship openly and freely like we can here. You know, if we're persecuted at all, we're in good company. Jesus said, so were the prophets. Think about the Old Testament prophets Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about Moses the prophet of God, and all the things the people grumbled about and said against him in the wilderness. Think about Isaiah and his great prophecies, his great book. But in the end, he was sawn in two. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. We have Daniel, um, who was just a man of God. But the leaders conspired against him and manipulated the law and manipulated the king to have him thrown into a den of lions. God saved him. But there's persecution Christ suffered persecution throughout his whole life. He had to face the religious leaders who were constantly following him, not to witness the miracles and listen to him really and worship him, but to look for something they could accuse him of. And then in the end, when they arrested him and held these illegal trials overnight before his crucifixion, it says in 1 Peter 2 that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What an example we have in our Lord Jesus when he faced persecution. Early Christians in the New Testament were often persecuted. You remember how the apostles were arrested multiple times. And then you see their reaction in Acts 5, that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Isn't that wonderful and refreshing? You look at the Apostle Paul's laundry list of persecutions in 2 Corinthians. He was shipwrecked twice, beaten a number of times, left for dead. Um, he, had a, he was betrayed by false brothers. And on top of everything, he had to worry night and day about the concerns of the church. 
And then ultimately, church history tells us that the Apostle Paul was beheaded. And ultimately, all the apostles except maybe the Apostle John were martyred for their faith. And then you see that pattern of persecution continue throughout all of church history. We need a proper perspective on persecution. We need to view it as the Apostle Paul viewed it in Romans 8 where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In another place in 2 Corinthians, he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul had a heavenly perspective on persecution. When he faced these intense, severe persecutions, he kept the weight of eternal glory in mind. He called what he was going through as a light affliction. It doesn't always feel like a light affliction when we're going through suffering and persecution, but through, in, the, in the perspective of eternity and the blessings that await us in the kingdom of heaven, the suffering and persecution in this life are but a light affliction, right? Here's what persecution today isn't. Persecution in America isn't being hounded by bill collectors for overdue payments. It's not being hassled by a harsh boss or a cantankerous neighbor. It's not the everyday trials of life like high gasoline prices, frustrating traffic jams, or lack of toilet paper on the shelves for people stocking up for the end of the world. And it's not being persecuted due to some sin. It's not being persecuted and being spoken falsely about for being a knucklehead, as Steve would say. Let's not do stuff that provokes people unnecessarily. You know, when a Christian leader is maligned and railed against in the media for some kind of financial scandal or sexual scandal, they deserve that. Um, we don't want to deliberately say insulting things or provoke people's wrath. I was in a personal evangelism class back in Bible college, and our professor, Chris Schroeder, with the Zico Project, he's a zealot. He goes out and he does everything for evangelism. But he was telling us this story one day, I remember, when uh, he and his friend got kind of riled up and they went out with a couple bullhorns. And outdoors there was this large gathering of Mormons and he's on one side with a bullhorn and his friend is on the other side of the crowd with the bullhorn and they're shouting scripture back and forth across the crowd, uh, you know, condemnation and also the gospel. Well, when the police show up and threaten to arrest them for doing that, they, they brought that on themselves. Maybe that's not the best and gracious way to share the gospel, right? <laughs> Um, that's not persecution well-deserved. De well <laughs> um, what it is, is suffering, as Jesus says here in Matthew 5, for righteousness' sake and for my sake. You know, if we're going to be persecuted in this life, let it, be for all the let it not be for all the reasons someone else might be persecuted um, or spoken against just for being a bonehead, right? Let it be, if we're going to be persecuted, let it be for living a life fully devoted to Jesus Christ. Let it be for taking a stand for Christ and suffering because of it, keeping in mind humility and gentleness. And Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You know, we can expect some opposition and persecution if we are faithfully living for Jesus Christ in this world. But if they defame us for living for Christ in this world, let them be ashamed because we are speaking up for Christ. 
We are suffering for God. And ultimately, they're not persecuting us. They're persecuting God when they defame us for being who we are in Christ. And so some ways we might do that in this culture. Um, I have a good friend out in New Hampshire. He's a missionary with open-air campaigners, goes to the subways, the college campuses, um, Bible camps. He takes the gospel everywhere with his sketchboard ministry um, that I try to do on Wednesday nights with Awana. And uh, he's inspired me in a lot of ways to do that. But one of the things he also does is go in front of the abortion clinic and people who come in, he tries to encourage them not to go through it and presents them with science about the life of the unborn child. You know, what if we speak up against the injustice of the murder of the unborn, a.k.a. abortion? What if we speak up for biblical marriage as defined in the Bible as between one man and one woman for life? What if we speak up for the truth of the gospel, including the reasons we need to be saved, which is there is a holy and righteous God who will pour out his judgment and wrath on sinners, but then there is a payment for sin through his son Jesus Christ. You can be saved. If we speak up for these things, when we represent Christ in a Christ-like way, it's inevitable we're going to face some opposition in this world because they oppose God, because they oppose Christ. It says here in the verses that Jesus gives us that this kind of worthy persecution is something we can rejoice. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad over, he says. We're enduring it for Jesus' sake. In fact, it's quite an honor to suffer for Christ's sake. It is. The disciples, they, they were just rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. Would we have that same kind of response when we face opposition today? That we would rejoice, that we're just counted worthy. There's persecution around the world today, like I said. And I just want to kind of wind down the message here with sharing an example of what's happening in China today. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine Voice of the Martyrs, but I get this magazine monthly called Voice of the Martyrs. And it's a sobering wake-up call to what's happening to believers around the world today. And in the March issue here, it's talking about China, communist China. And the option for Christianity that's allowed is to be a registered church with the government. And if you're going to be a registered church with communist China, you have to have pictures of their communist leaders posted by the front of your church. You can't have a cross on the outside. Your sermons have to be pre-approved. You have to open with a song that supports the communist regime. And even after fully complying with all of this, you could still be raided and closed down. Right now, the country is in the middle of a five-year sanitization process where they're trying to make everything more Chinese. And so they're cracking down on the churches. The only other option in China is to have an illegal church, an underground church. And in the face of persecution, the church in China is exploding. They come in and raid and close down the churches, but it's just spreading. That They'll arrest and imprison the church leaders, but it's still growing. And I love this story in this magazine this month. It's about the early reign covenant church of Chengdu. And they're a church of about 500, but a couple years ago they raided the church, arrested over 100 people, and they imprisoned a couple of their elders and their pastor. And one of their elders, Li Yingyang, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but just hours before his arrest, wrote a letter to the congregation. Here's what Elder Li said. Thank the Lord, he wrote. 
Just as the year 2018 is about to end, God has given us a reward in the form of this large-scale persecution that arrived on December 9th. He instructed the church to face persecution according to 1 Peter 4, 12-14. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And he went on to say, May the whole world know that we are joyfully willing to receive this persecution for the sake of our faith. And he concluded with a reminder of the church's mission statement, Christ is the Lord, grace is the King, bear the cross, proclaim the gospel. And then Elder Lee was sentenced to prison for about a year. Another one of his elders for four years. Their pastor for nine years. And they're still serving their sentences. He got to go back to his family that next August, but he still has to check in and report regularly to the authorities. You know, if these dear brothers and sisters can thrive and have that kind of attitude in the face of such persecution, maybe we can go out a little more boldly into our culture, into our country here, where we don't face that kind of persecution and proclaim the gospel boldly. There's nothing hindering us like that here in America, like they're facing in China. Why do we not go out and share the life-giving hope and message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That our sins can be forgiven by trusting in Christ and his death alone is the payment for our sins. There is a way to be forgiven and saved and be right with God, be at peace with God. And there's a double blessing with this beatitude. It's the only beatitude that has a double blessing. We see it here at the end of verse 10 and 12. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Those are comforting words for anyone suffering persecution for Christ. No matter how bad it could get in this life for any believer around any part of the world, there is a blessing in heaven. Great is our reward in heaven. And if we confess Jesus before others in this life, he'll confess us before his Father in heaven, he says. We should not shy away from the gospel. I just love that elder who just um, emphatically stated their mission statement in his letter before his arrest. Christ is the Lord. Grace is the King. Bear the cross. Proclaim the gospel. Our mission statement here is leading everyone to everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. Leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. Let us never forget that vision or take our eyes off of it. If we take our eyes off that vision, we're going to have a lack of peace and we're going to have conflict. If we take our eyes off that vision, we're not going to be persecuted. You think, well, I'm not being persecuted. Well, maybe that's because we're not stepping out and doing what we should be doing. The blessings far outweigh the sufferings in this life. The, the sufferings in this life, the persecution is just temporary, as Paul said. The blessings are eternal. We're citizens of heaven. The victory over the enemy has been won. And so now we should go out boldly and share our faith with this lost world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this passage of the Beatitudes, the blessings. We thank you that it's not a way to earn our salvation. We know we cannot earn our salvation despite our best efforts. It's not about our works, our attitude, but it's about what Christ has done for us. And Lord, because you have done so much to bring us peace through the death of your Son, uh, help us to be peacemakers. Help us to look at the example of the prophets and the apostles and every other believer who's been faithful through the centuries and, Lord, be a peacemaker. Help us, Lord, to stand firm for Christ in this culture 
And we pray for our dear brothers and sisters in China, suffering, uh, who cannot meet openly without the fear of imprisonment, being detained and being imprisoned and, and sent to concentration camps to reorient their thinking about communism. So Lord, help us to be faithful and faithfully obey and follow your calling on our lives to share the gospel. Lord, help us to be faithful to lead people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we take the bread and cup now, Lord, we're just thankful for the peace made between God and man through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus, who suffered and died on the cross for our sins. And we thank you that he is a risen Savior, that he conquered sin and death. And because of that, we too can have victory over sin and death in the resurrection because we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Our, uh, come up to the communion tables as normal. Um, we'll have a server handing you the bread this morning just in the interest of sanitary needs. Thank you. I invite you to take some time to reflect as we sing this song and then when you're ready to come forward and, and take the, the elements of communion. Watching. Mm-hmm.